Radio Mano Papachango. Georgia. That music is called, it's an excerpt from a song called Bright Side of the Sun, and the band is Basin and Range. Sorry for the background noise. I'm in an Airbnb. There's traffic outside. I'm throwing this together so I can get it up before we lose the Wi-Fi. Story of my fucking life. Uh, This is a really good episode. Uh, Chris and Nani a couple that we met in Africa, you know, one of these travel things, right? I'm going to Tanzania. I reach out to my friend, Jeff Leach, whom I met through the podcast. He's the microbiome dude who famously squirted some hunter gatherer fecal material up his own ass to see if he could get a hunter gatherer microbiome colonized in his own gut. I read the story and some God knows where I read the story, but read that story and by sheer chance I happened to be sitting at a table in a bar in Texas and somebody commented that their mug was dirty and someone else said oh it's good for your microbiome and I said oh you know about microbiome I heard about this anthropologist who was in Tanzania and he squirted some hunter-gatherer shit up his ass and blah 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 and the guy goes yeah that's him at the end of the table you may have heard this story but anyway that's how I met Jeff Leach one of life's great coincidences. Um, anyway, he's uh, check the archives. Jeff Leach, L-E-A-C-H, brilliant dude, really cool guy. And he said, oh, if you're in Tanzania, you should uh, drop in and see my friends Chris and Nani. Put me in touch with them. We rolled down to their place. They're in a place called Lake Ayasi, uh, which is way out in the middle of nowhere, uh, very close to where the Hadza, Hadzabi hunter-gatherers live. And we were lucky enough to go out and spend uh, a morning with them, wandering around, watching them shoot various things and climb up in a tree and pull honey out while being stung by bees. And uh, yeah, pretty cool experience. Anyway, got to sit down with Chris and Nani and record this podcast. I have to tell you in uh, the interest of transparency that I only had two microphones, which I gave to them and I use my telephone to record my uh, channel, my track. So the sound quality is not ideal, but, uh, you know, we're sitting at a table in a remote corner of Tanzania. So I hope you'll forgive that. It's not bad. It's not terrible. And I know my sound quality is not studio, uh, you know, Joe Rogan microphone, soundproof, sponge walls. It's, you know, never that great. So I guess you're kind of tolerant of the on the road sound quality of this podcast. Um, Anyway, before we get to that, I want to play um, an intro that just came in. Uh, Interesting, fantastic intro. And I want to remind you that if you want to send in intros, you can send them to me at intro snips 
with an S on the end, introsnips at gmail.com. That's a special email account that we have for these intros. So here you go. Hey, Chris. Daniel here. I'm uh, a little out of breath, sorry. I've just been climbing the uh, Katarka Mountains on the southern side of uh, the deepest jungles of Peru. I, uh, I like to come out here and uh, just listen to the dulcet tones of your podcast. Uh, I've been traveling for uh, 17 years now, nonstop, out of a backpack. Uh, never had a job. Have no family. All I've got is you, Chris. I'm about to head north, do some ayahuasca in the deepest jungles of Calabaca before I swing by Jalacucu and uh, get some much needed R&R. Anyway, Chris and listeners, life is beautiful. Peace. Indeed it is. Life is beautiful in Delacucu. Uh, did I ever tell you about the time I did ayahuasca? Ayahuasca in Delacucu? <laughs> and got dysentery in the highest mountains of Delacucu? Okay, obviously Daniel or whoever that is is taking the piss, which I appreciate. It's always good to take some piss. Way too much piss around here. Um, but anyway, if you do want to leave, uh, send me an intro. I will play it, even if you're taking the piss in a friendly way. You know, if it's mean spirited, I'm not going to play it. But in a friendly way, fuck yeah, why not? Introsnips at gmail.com. Uh, try to keep it under a minute. Um, I guess try not to make things that'll trigger poor Daniel about not having a family and traveling for 17 years. Um, but yeah, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, even, you know, Hey, I do play the pot, the, uh, snips from people who are like, uh, you know, I got a job. I'm, you know, just sort of commuting to work or I'm on my tractor in the back 40 or whatever. It doesn't have to be exotic, whoever you are, whatever you're doing, I'm sure it's cool and interesting and you've got stories to tell, which is why I prefer guests like those in this episode, Chris and Nani. They're not famous. I didn't, you know, watch their TED talk and then talk to their publicist and, and get them on because they're pushing a book. I got them on because they're fascinating people living really interesting lives. And uh, I met them by chance. So that's my favorite way to do this. Okay, fucking noisy Tbilisi. Anyway, before I go on any further, just let me say for the last time, because this is a July thing, check out the Risk podcast hosted by Kevin Allison. Excellent podcast where people tell crazy ass stories they never thought they'd say in public. Kevin and I are doing sort of a promotional swap this month. So he's telling his audience about this podcast and I'm telling you about his. It's great, but I'll stop nagging you about that after this. All right, that's enough from me. I will be recording uh, probably a 
Aroma soon, I think, because I just did Aroma. Let's see, what have I done recently? I just did Aroma. I just posted a video log, a vlog, a thing I didn't know actually existed until Anya told me that's what we were doing, uh, of a hike we took in uh, Kazbegi, Georgia, up to a, a church on top of a mountain. That's uh, epic. Yeah. So check it out. If you don't subscribe to my newsletter on Substack, you won't know about this shit. You're missing all the fun. Um, even the stuff that's behind a paywall, you know, an email goes out and lets you know about it. Um, but for free subscribers, you get notices when I post things like that or whatever. Uh, articles I write, little essays. Uh, and I will post a bunch of photos and a video or two from Africa uh, in the show notes for this episode. So if you want to see some of the better shots, I mean, we took some really amazing photos. It's crazy, though, because it's like, oh, it's a photo of a lion. Like, okay, that's cool. You know, we've all seen it on David Attenborough's programs. Um, but to actually just have a lion 10 feet away from you, it's fucking crazy. It's a really weird experience, man. Anyway, I uh, hope you enjoy this episode with Chris and Nani. And uh, I'm going to play you out with a piece of music I love. I have no idea how to pronounce it. It's spelled N apostrophe. Well, why don't you just go to the show notes and you'll see it there. The, um, the artist is Sheik Lo, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's Senegalese. Uh, it's just a beautiful tune. And if you know anything about African music, the, you know, first few notes, you already know this is an African musician playing here. Really beautiful song. The song is Ninjirinu Garab, I think something like that. All right. I'm done messing this up. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Hope you enjoy this conversation. With Chris and Nani, who are living what is surely one of the great love stories ever told. Lucky them. Bye.
So uh, I was thinking about this conversation and and I thought I want to open by taking the pressure off us because just having dinner with you guys last night, I thought there were like 50 things that came up that we could talk about for hours. So this is going to be like a very small window looking out onto a very vast landscape. So no pressure. We don't need to like tell the story of your lives or anything because okay. I know that would take so long. Um, but thank you for doing this. I, you're very private people, and you know I always feel like it's an expression of trust when somebody who isn't a public figure agrees to do this. So thank you. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm with Chris and Nani. What is, is Nani short for something? Mariana. Mariana. Okay. Uh, in uh, in the most enchanted 
forest. I mean, you just everywhere you look here, there's something incredible. And you guys, I guess you might be used to it. No, we're know. privileged. We know we are. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. We, we, we consciously make ourselves aware of it regularly. Yeah. That's I think that's the trick to happiness, right? Mm. Like mm. it is. Just reminding yourself how magical it all mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. Wherever okay. you Absolutely. are. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean I just randomly look over there in a flower pot with arrows a bow and <laughs> what, what, what are the horns they're impala impala horns yeah. just sort of you know in the corner <laughs> the opposite the kind of thing that in los angeles would be mounted on the wall <laughs> you know in some sort of frame so where are we describe where we are and and how we came to be here um we are in northern tanzania at the shore of lake Eyasi. And I was born here in 69. My parents came out in February 69. I was born in June. So I'm, I'm made in Germany, but born here. And um, grew up on a coffee farm not too far from here, 50 kilometers, where you passed through yesterday in Karatu. And um, had the most amazing childhood and will be forever grateful to my parents for having had the courage to take the step. In those days, quite daring yeah. um, to move to Tanzania. With your mother six months pregnant? Yeah, at the time. Exactly. And did they know Africa or were they stepping into the unknown? Completely. Really? Completely. My, my dad um, had worked in agriculture. Yeah. Was looking for a job and um, saw an advert in a newspaper in those days and applied. And they said, yeah, we'd like to take you, but um, you'd have to come first and have a look. So they flew him down here for some time in 68. And as it was in those days, my mom was not involved also because she was pregnant. And right. he came back and said, well, that's the thing for us. Um, stop everything in Europe and come down here and started um, managing the farm. Wow. Okay, so 1968, the Vietnam War is happening, Martin Luther King, riots in Paris. Uh, what part of Germany were they in? Northern Germany, Westphalia. Westphalia. Yeah. Huh. The only thing I know about Westphalia is there's a Volkswagen camper van called the Westphalia. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But I mean, that's just looking back on that, knowing your parents as you do. Does that shock you that they took that that risk or are they that were they that kind of people? Um, I think they were that kind of people. It it wouldn't I wouldn't say shocked me, it amazed me. And as I said, I I have um, a lot of of, um, appreciation for them having done that, because I, I think I would be a Completely different person, obviously, for if I sure. had grown up in Germany on a whatever little farm there yeah. compared to what I had here. Yeah. So you think the agriculture aspect was sort of preordained? You would, yes. you would have Probably. a farm. Yes. Is that because your father worked in that business or because it, there's something about being semi-independent that you like? Or what is it about farming? Um, for him, because he came from a farming background also. He grew up on a farm mm. and studied agriculture and right. worked in farming. And for me, I think probably for the same reason, um, having grown up on that farm where I had a lot of freedom, where it was um, beautiful as well, not as wild as here, but still, still Africa, still with animals around and everything. Um, I think that's what, what made me want to come to a place like this again. Hmm. So, and your parents had land here? They, no, they didn't at the time oh, okay. until 89. Uh, and then they got this piece of land in 86, I believe. Uh, okay. My dad already, he was still working for those people, but he looked ahead and said, maybe I'll stop working for them eventually, which he did in 89 and then started here. So he stayed with that same company all those years yes, while exactly. you were growing up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
Interesting. And then ownership changed and eventually decided that it was time to yeah. move away from them. And it must have been a really interesting conversation when your father came back from Africa to your mother, who's mm. pregnant, mm. and says, okay, we're going yeah. to Africa. Yeah. Well, she's never been. Exactly. She has no idea. I know. That's a lot of trust. Exactly. It was. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And did she love Africa? She did. Yeah. From the get-go, do you think, from immediately, or did it take I her time? I think she probably didn't even have time to think much about how much she liked it, because there were so many new things to learn, to adjust to the language, baby. obviously. Are baby. you the oldest? I'm the oldest, yeah. Yeah, I'm so for sister. her, like, that's a huge adventure Absolutely. on its own. Yeah. And she must have felt so vulnerable. I don't think so. No? I think, no, you do. the Tanzanian people, as you probably realized, are very welcoming and very mm. gentle and friendly and... So I think she never, no, she never felt that. Right. There were people working in the house that they lived in, um, a cook and somebody else, and they immediately embraced her and taught her everything and the language and what and have helped you. helped her with Very you, much, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I, had, I had a lady who t- looked after me, yeah. as, as uh, is, is the case here. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. It took me, I was uh, together with a woman from Mozambique for mm-hmm. 20 years, and we went to visit her family down there. And and initially I was kind of put off by the fact that they had all these people working for oh, them. Good point. You know, and I felt like, oh, this is so colonial mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm, privileged mm-hmm. and all that. And then I said something about it and they said, look, our responsibility is to share. Mm-hmm. Like we know we have this privilege exactly. and there's no use in denying it. But you can create a lot of jobs. Yeah. So we don't really need the gardener exactly. or the guy no. working in the pool Absolutely. or whatever. But it's good to have them around. That's exactly how we see it. Yeah? Yeah. And we get the same thing. We get friends visit from Europe or, or Argentina who ask the same question. They say, why do you have all these people working for you? You know, why you have um, um, servants? Right. That's how they call it. Yeah. And we ex- explain exactly the same thing. These people have a job which they otherwise wouldn't have. Mm. And um, we have a nice example of one friend of Nani's who came and decided to wash her own clothes because she felt bad about somebody doing her laundry and then one of our ladies in the kitchen went up to her and asked her whether she didn't trust them with her clothes and whether that was why she washed them herself and I think that was quite an eye-opener for her to to see that um, it's not a case of that at all and I think also that depends very much on how you are with the people that you work with or that work for you you know how you treat them and um, whether you treat them and make them feel they are servants or whether they're part of the household you know right and right that's what we want to do and achieve and have is that difficult because of the the obvious gap in resources and uh, i mean is there i mean i would imagine theft and and things like that would be very tempting right like people who are yeah. living in a mud hut over there come here and see laptops True. and fancy microphones yeah. and yeah it's amazing Amazingly, not the case. Really? Not at all. The, I don't know if it's just Tanzanians, but they seem to to not be jealous or resentful. Right. You don't find that so often, perhaps in the cities, but mm. around here, or maybe his family built already a, a special relationship. But they seem, um, yeah, you never get that feeling. No, not at all. You don't get it. And we leave everything out and we leave everything unlocked and if he travels I never lock my door hmm. uh, you know it's it's safe you feel safe people make you feel safe and yeah. you never feel like 
yes, like there's any kind of class resentment or, or not, nothing. At all. That's interesting, given the history. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Tanzanians are also very, very forgiving. Unjudgmental. Unjudgmental. And um, what we also do is obviously we, we've, we've tried to, to be part of the social fabric of the area and be part of the community and involve ourselves if it's wanted. Right. We wouldn't want to impose, obviously. Right. But um, try to do what we can. And I think that has led to a situation here for us where we really are part of the community. Mm. And um, I'll give you an example. Recently, there was a fire here at the border at night. Somebody had harvested some honey from a dry tree. It was 12 at night. And um, the neighbors, the Tanzanian neighbors, dogs barked. And he saw there was a fire. So he immediately called us, called other people. People got together from the village, from our own, and um, put off the fire. That was in the middle of the night. I think if you didn't have a good relationship and were part of the community, that wouldn't have happened. They would have just right. said, let it burn. Right. And so, yeah. And it makes us feel very much welcomed and at home here. And, and we wouldn't want to live in our little vacuum and, and with mm. fences around and everything. Right. And as you probably saw, we don't have one fence. And right. the spring here is open to anybody. They come oh. and get the water here and everybody walks through. And, right. And also you speak Swahili fluently. You grew up here. Yeah. So the local people yes. must consider you local in some yeah. sense. And I have a, I have a, um, a friend that I grew up with, a Tanzanian, since I was four. And he's a business partner also. Ah. So we are, we are, we are in really shareholding. In it. Yeah, 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 very much so. Yeah, but again, fantastic. something that, that we consciously did and wanted. Yeah. I think it's important. What You said you have the farm here. I know you have some dairy cattle. Yes. What else are you growing here? Farming, nothing. Growing right. doesn't really work. Right. We have some fish farming, which is more of a hobby now. Um, we have some pigs. We have some sheep. But um, the big business would be the tented camp. Right. And talk about that a little bit. Uh, this isn't an advertisement, but no, no. this is a beautiful place. And if anyone uh, wanted to... Come here and uh, go hunting with the Hadza, as some of our friends are right now. Yeah. <laughs> this is the place to do it, right? Yeah, it is. So what's the name of the camp? Uh, Kisimangeda Camp. Okay, and I'll include a link uh, okay. on the podcast app. So if any, or the, yeah. the so Kisima page. means spring. Uh huh. Oh, right. Geda in the language of the Datoga, which is the other tribe around here, pastoralists. It means um, surrounded by trees. So basically, ah. it's like a little oasis, yeah. a spring surrounded by and trees. And it is. It, I mean, just coming in here, driving yesterday, you go down this dusty, mm. bumpy road, and I'm thinking, oh, God, where are we going? I know it's by a lake, but still, this is hot and dusty. And then you turn off into this, like, enchanted forest, mm -hmm. shrouded, beautiful old-growth trees, and yeah. it's, it's so nice here. And the reason things don't grow is because of uh, salinity in the soil yes, from yeah. the lake? Yeah, exactly. I right. mean, if you wanted, the one thing that does grow, and my dad, it was one of my dad's ideas, is to put coconut um, palms here, and they do grow, but it's not really worth it. So we early on decided to just protect the national forest for, for future generations. Right. And it's, we have schools come and visit regularly to have a look around. I mean, they obviously want to see the farming side and the camp, but then also the forest. And right. It's the last uh, piece of natural forest around, I think. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. So, okay, you ended up here because you grew up here. This is mm -hmm. sort of like your whole roots are here. Nani, what's your story? I, I, 
<laughs> I heard a little of it last night. It's a very different way to uh, yes. to come to this place, <laughs> a long and winding road. Yeah. So basically, I've been want. I wanted to come. It was a dream to come to Africa since I was little. I Why? was. I, I don't know because Just... I used to read National Geographics at school. Uh-huh. And yes, yeah. I had this fascination for for Africa. You know, and where when, where were you in? Were you in Buenos Aires? Or I, were, I was born in Buenos Aires. And, and lived there until we were on a farm until I was about five, six. And then my parents moved to the north, oh. east of Argentina, close to the Brazilian border. Mm, up um, around the Gua- Guazú Falls? Yes, sort of halfway area. between Buenos Aires and mm. Guazú. And um, yeah, so we started a farm there, cattle, mm. cattle ranching. And grew up there, but there was nothing. There were no schools, there were no roads. So we ended up going to an English boarding school which brought me in touch with National Geographics. So ah. I had all the, the English National Geographics, all the, the whole collection, and I kept reading them. So I always dreamed of coming to Africa. And, um, and my dad, I used to tell my dad, you know, I'm going to live in Africa. And he was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so at 20, when I was 20, I left Argentina to go travel. And what year is this, if you don't? Uh, yes, 89. Eighty-nine. Okay, so you and I were traveling around the same time. I was really traveling in the late eighties and into the nineties. Yeah. So I started in the states because it was easier. In Miami, I had a friend started there, then made it to New York. I'm Mm. a farm girl, so I wanted city. Oh yeah. Ended up selling popcorn on the street. Oh really? It was in Manhattan. In Manhattan. Mm. It was it was a wonderful time, but it was just that, you know, I was working illegally, yes, but just to get some money and yeah. keep on traveling. And right. then I met uh, some uh, guys from Belgium. And in those days, tickets were not personalized. So I bought his return ticket, ah, ended right. up in Belgium, did Europe for a while, um, finally got back to Argentina and then went off to the Amazon, did that for a while. But my dream was still Africa. I was, I was a bit afraid of crossing the ocean because in the States, in Europe, you can always find a job that, you know, will pay in dollars or euros and take you a bit further. But, and in South America, you can always hitchhike back. Hmm. You know, Is it safe you know, to hitchhike? In, it was? Uh, yeah. yeah, not so much in South America. But right. yes, it's, right. I guess being South American, it's a little bit easier. Yeah. And... Um, Yes, and so, so finally, after five years of traveling, I thought, okay, I'm ready to, to take the leap and uh, arrived in Kenya and then slowly worked my way down to South Africa and met Chris in the first three months was yeah, it? Yes, think so. of my stay. Or, in South uh, Africa? No, yeah. in Tanzania. Oh. Kenya, and then from Kenya to Tanzania, oh. and that's where we met yeah, when I so. was on semester holidays. Ah, okay. I'm studying. So, so we met you, in you were back in Germany studying, I was, and you happened to be down here yes. seeing your, your yeah. family. Yes. Oh, that's good timing. And, and yes. then you and almost they, missed it. Absolutely. And and they, went, they, were, they were in Germany at the time, so I was here alone, and I was in town and met her in a bar. And See, drinking is good for you. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was lunchtime, though, so I wasn't quite drinking yet. <laughs> I was looking for a job in that bar, uh, and he was selling fish, no? Yes, I had brought, delivered fish, exactly, oh, okay. smoked fish. So you weren't just hanging out in the no, bar? No, you no. Were, okay. Yeah. And we were waiting for the owner and got to chatting. Really? And I wanted a place where I could go, a place with nature, where I didn't have to pay national park fees or right. need a car to, to enter. And so he invited me down here, and... 
Mind you, I had a girlfriend at the time, and, and I, I was me? very, very open with her, so she wouldn't think I would have any intentions. A girlfriend and, here? No, in, in, Germany, in Germany, back in Germany. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So we had what ten days together here, and even though I'd never believed in love at first sight, it wasn't first sight, but like after two days, yeah. for me it was clear this is the woman of my life. So. Love at first week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I had it. I knew what I didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> Which was to marry a, an accountant in Buenos Aires? I used to think I didn't want to marry a German. Oh, but, yeah. Places, yeah. Well, <laughs> but is he really a German? No, uh, that's it's it. kind of... It's a that's thing, maybe, it. yeah. In name only. Yes. Right. Yeah. No, and uh, after four days, we got to talking in the evenings and late. And yeah, it's funny how coming from totally different cultures and different yeah. upbringings at the same time, we had so many, so much common ground and... Um, you both got, both grew up on a farm in a remote place, mm. liked nature. Both went to boarding schools. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot in common. And I, I feel like people who have international lives have so much in common, True. even if they're in totally yes. different parts You're of right. the world. Yeah. You're Absolutely. both adapting. You both yes. know what it's like to be True. alone and be self-reliant. Exactly. And, yeah. you know, you've, you've been through a lot of the same emotional things. Yeah. Yes. You're away from your family. I, I had been looking for, for someone who, who could share my, my mind, you know, right. and, and what I wanted from life, which was pretty different to what most of the people I knew wanted. I just wanted to be in a place of nature with a lot of freedom and um, if that meant sacrificing security and all sorts of things, that was exactly what I, what I was looking for. I was not sure I would ever find it and I found the guy, the place. And, and was it yes. as, as quick for you or was it a longer process no, of knowing? No, for me, I, I think it was quicker for me, but I was not going to say anything <laughs> because he was the one with the girlfriend. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> and also, uh, I, I did think, yeah. you know, I was just traveling by and I didn't want right. to, to just be the, the vagabond that he crossed right. at some point in his the, life. So the, I was, ruined his romance yeah. and then continued on, right? <laughs> so I went on after 10 days. Yeah, and I had to go off. back to, to Germany to see the exams and all that. So. Right. And you know, it was different in those days. There was no email, no internet, really, or anything. Yeah. And I got the odd postcard of hers, but that was it. And I couldn't get in touch because she was traveling. So and of course you're thinking she's traveling, she's meeting so many exactly. guys, yeah, interesting yeah. guys, yeah. you know, backpackers and yes, and the yeah. same. I, I started sending letters and love, love or whatever. <laughs> By the end, I was sending postcards almost bare because I thought I'm sure he went back to his girlfriend, in, which I did not. Germany. I went back and for the first time, very, very uh, consistently broke up with her. Really, mm. I knew because I couldn't go on with her when I knew I had money out there. Somewhere. Even if Nani wasn't yeah. for with you, mm-hmm. just knowing she yes. existed was enough. Exactly. That's a very interesting thing. Most people wouldn't have done that, I think. Maybe Most people not. want to know there's a place to land before they jump. True, but for me, it was so strong that I was just absolutely sure I had to do that. And I would have, if it hadn't worked out with her, I would have probably... Come um, back to your girlfriend. No, 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 no. <laughs> I would, I would Take have a trip to Argentina. Kept her on the map. <laughs> regrouped and reassessed my options, but for me it was just very clear. And then, so that was September, and by February I just was desperate to get in touch with her again. Yeah. And I thought she may have reached South Africa, and thankfully she had left her parents' number. So I got my courage together and uh, called them from Germany to ask whether introduced myself, obviously, and. Thankfully, they knew about me because she them. had told them. So I asked whether they had any contact for her. And indeed, they had, she had reached a farm in South Africa where she was staying. So I got her on the phone and 
um, asked her whether she would want to see me again, maybe. And she said yes. So I managed to fly down to South Africa and um, I hired a car and drove up to where she was. And, and I we... fed him potatoes for <laughs> <laughs> for three days. Something like that. And then we went down to Cape Town and we had, what, a total of six days together in South Africa after the 10 days here in each other's company and decided to get married. Whoa. Yeah. So... When you called her parents, what language did you speak? English. English. Your parents yeah. speak English. Yeah. Uh -huh. Her whole family speaks very good English. Uh, okay. So well, that's helpful. Very. Right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and then I'm, I'm picturing the drive. So you fly all the way to Cape Town. Mm -hmm. You rent a car. Mm -hmm. How long is the drive? It was five, well, five, five hours. Five hours. Just yeah. to the Namibian. Yes. You're alone. <laughs> yes. You're just thinking. Mm -hmm. Very much so, yeah. <sighs> was not easy, but it was, I mean, the moment I saw her again, it was, yeah, yeah. all worth it, all justified, all happiness. Wow. Yeah. Yes. Wow. I think it, it, was, it was special in the sense that we both knew we had found, an, yes, a, a, a mind connection, right. you know, which is not an easy thing no. to find. Right. And I think it went beyond... Uh, you know, sexuality or lust or, or attraction. Yes, sure. there was that as well. But yeah. I think the connection was, was yeah. more mental and, and we, yeah. we shared the same, the same dreams and, and the same, for me as, as an Argentinian, I came from a Catholic upbringing. Um, it took me a while to, to I had to de-learn everything I had learned. Yeah. So my yeah. whole five years of traveling, you know, I kept checking all those preconceived mm. notions that right. I had been inoculated with since childhood and sort of uh, testing them and dropping them and gaining new ones. And um, I, I found that to find someone that shared uh, an open-minded uh, view of, of the world and what our meaning of life is yeah. was not easy. I could not find even on the road where you're meeting other travelers who no. you would think have a similar lust for mm -hmm. life and fearlessness. some limits there, you know? Yeah. Not, not the completely open mind I was looking for. Uh, I wonder also if it didn't help that you had a girlfriend at maybe. the time, right? Because maybe. if you hadn't had a girlfriend... I wouldn't have come here. Yes. You wouldn't have come. Yeah. Because I would have thought You wouldn't have trusted him. He's just, just yeah. another exactly. guy who wants to exactly. get laid. Yeah. And you're yeah. getting that all the time as Absolutely. a woman traveling alone. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's so interesting. Well, you, sh you should thank her. I know. I should actually. <laughs> belatedly. She's still in the family album. <laughs> <laughs> that my mom keeps, mind yeah. you. Yeah. But yeah, there were lots, lots, of, lots of little coincidences that conspired to make this happen. And, and it's... I. Definitely know it's the best decision of my life. And, and still, I can say we, I couldn't be happier mm -hmm. in the relationship that we have. And that's now, what, 20, 27 years since we, is it? No, 25 years since we met. No, 27. No, 27 since mm -hmm. we met. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's great. Extremely lucky. Yeah, for sure. But, and also willing to put in the work of... Yes. I mean, I think long relationships... You know, you're talking about the mind connection that's so hard to find. I read somewhere someone said marriage is a long conversation mm. over decades. Very so you marry point. someone you want to, yes. you enjoy exactly. speaking yeah. with and, and it stays interesting 
and also that you're willing to look at yourself in ways that uh, aren't easy sometimes and and grow in the other yeah. person's presence. Yeah, so we were uh, different. I mean, I hadn't had a, a, a relationship. Yeah. So this was your first relationship? A proper relationship, yeah. yes. It was my first, and it was from zero to all, because yeah. we hadn't been together that long. And then we were apart for a while. I, I, I got to, once I was in South Africa, I didn't have a return ticket. Right. But I had gotten a trip on a catamaran that was going across the Atlantic to, to the Caribbean. And got a lift, well... You were a crew or something? Right. Yes. And then on the way, it took me a while. You were four people only. Yes, we were just four people. It was a small boat. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got home and I still had to get a job, work and get money to to Mm -hmm. come back. So we hadn't really been together. We had been together 10 days without any kind of relationship, five or six days in South Africa where we just admitted that we liked each other <laughs> and then there was a year of nothing or well no no no, no 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 i came in june then four months later i visited her in, in argentina oh, oh, met the family. family oh another interesting Very. flight and and <laughs> they said it's normal <laughs> <laughs> for a german exactly <laughs> but it was again amazing to meet her family it's just like yeah, yeah. connected so well yeah. and um then i think it was another like five months or six months until you then you came here for three months and then so it was a lot of back and forth for two yes. years almost. And then and we, when, we, when we started living together, it was from zero to 24 hours a day. And I thought, how the hell do you live 24 hours a day with the same person? Yeah. And the answer is one day at a time. And yeah. it's actually really cool. Yeah. You know, I yeah. Just, and were you, uh, where did you start living together? Right here. Right here. Yeah. Right here. So your whole relationship, yeah. except, except for that first few yes. days, was yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, wow, that's, that's But I really was something. ready to settle, you know, because people, I think, maybe your family was a bit nervous that I, whether <laughs> I would settle or not, besides yeah. the fact that this South American vagabond had <laughs> nabbed, <laughs> nabbed their, their only male son. She's moving in? <laughs> what? <laughs> besides that, yes, I think there was this worry, this yeah. genuine worry that I would not be stable because I had been yeah. wondering for it. but I but That's I was fair. looking for something yeah. and I found what I was looking for so so this is really the only serious relationship you've ever had mm. yes I had I mean a the the um, Argentinian male was not my kind of male. Um, I wanted someone that could sit with me and watch a sunset and talk about deep things. And yes, I guess in my times, at least, the Argentinian male was a macho and he did not do those things. Mm. You know, it was, there was no romanticism and mm. no, no philosophy and no, no mm. deep thoughts, if you will, at least among the ones I, I met. So I, I guess pretty early on, I, I, I was looking for, for my, my guy elsewhere. Did you feel any sense of like, oh, I want to keep traveling and I want to know more men and have more, you were ready. You were like, I've seen enough. Yes. I mean, you've been, you'd been around a lot at that I think time. Because by the time we got married, it was seven years until, you know, until we actually settled since I had left home and yes, I'd, I'd, 
for me, the traveling was not about moving necessarily, but about figuring things out without the pressure from your own society. Yeah. In a way, it gives you that freedom. And did you, uh, that must have been very hard. Raised as a Catholic, a woman or a girl, even depending yes. how you want to, yes. you know, define things to leave Argentina and just say, I'm going to go see the world. Bye, mom and dad. I think mm-hmm. I left thinking I'll go for a couple of months. I wanted to ditch my boyfriend, but I didn't know how to do it. Mm. And I was, it was a bit more running away than uh, going looking forward. for something. Uh, but already my, my whole perception of the world had changed. And I felt that if this was life and to get the Catholic version of it and the thereafter and whatever, I needed to to figure out what I wanted to do with it because the choices were all mine. Yeah. And suddenly this whole world of choices, there was no more fatality and you have to take what you get and, you know, and all the, all the things you had to comply with within my society. And suddenly it was freedom. Mm, that must have and been so, scary. It was scary. It was scary. <laughs> Everyone always thinks freedom is such a good thing. Exactly. It's yeah. the scariest it's thing, actually. Yeah. Absolutely. But I think the, um, yes, it, it was, it was, it came slowly. So I, I left more as an escape and then I got caught mm. up in the wonder of it, of it all and the, the different choices and I just got carried away. I never expected to be gone for that long or to be traveling for that long. Do you ever feel happened. here that you're still traveling? Yes, constantly. Yeah, I would think Which is so. why I think... It's it's okay to settle here yeah. because even a walk in the forest, you never know. Mm, it's always yeah. the, it's always the same forest, and yet there's there's that you know it's it's safe. You can walk, and but at the same time, you never know. Sometimes you meet a buffalo. Sometimes there's a black mamba. Sometimes there's a hyena, and it keeps it it keeps you aware. It keeps you paying attention. Right. You can't completely relax. It's unpredictable, and I think that's the what I love about you, hmm. that you can never take things for granted. Keeps you sharp and alive, yes. alert. Yes. Yeah. There's always something happening or someone interesting coming through. Um, and everything is new despite being here for half my life now. Yeah. Yes. Speaking of interesting people coming through, this might be a good time to say hello to our friend Jeff, who I'm yes. sure will be listening yes. to this. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Hey, Jeff. Uh, hey, Jeff. Shame you couldn't be here last night. It would have yeah. been so nice. Yes. Yeah. We well, he was him. in spirit. Yes, I sent him the photo. Him, yes. uh, yeah. Uh, Very much. Yeah, people who want to know who we're talking about, I don't know, I don't remember which episode it was, but Jeff Leach, uh, world-renowned microbiome expert and real estate magnate and uh, <laughs> pilot and, yeah, goddamn renaissance man. He pisses and me tequila off. Tequila brewer. Guy. <laughs> tequila brewer. <laughs> yeah. God knows what else he's got going on. I, he's, we were saying last night, he's, he's one of these guys who seems to be so relaxed and then you it's talk so to productive. him and you're like what yeah. you're publishing articles in science you're doing all this research in africa <laughs> you're you know yeah. you're building this whole airbnb empire Absolutely. you're revitalizing this little town in tech like yes. what, and everything he touches so seems to, to thrive you know yeah. Just Flourish, so, yeah. he has a magical touch yes. yes. yeah. yeah yeah and he's good looking fuck you jeff <laughs> yeah that's God true damn it good looking 
<laughs> He's got that sort of like grizzled, most interesting man in the world thing going on, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Yes. Yeah. Come on. And anyway, so Jeff good, Leach, yes. listen to that one. So good with his with his talks, and he can adapt them to any public. You yeah. Know, you get kids, and he'll keep them riveted for hours, and you get a local person, and he can go and explain it at a level that even they understand, and it's it's pretty yeah. amazing. It is. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wrote to him this morning and I said, the best thing a friend can give his friends is introductions to his other friends. Mm -hmm. And, True. you know, it's very good point. It's uh, it's really great. We had a I wish I could have recorded dinner last night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's continue with you. you you write. I heard is yes. is, is that available to the public? So I have, what what no, do you write? So I've written three books up to now I'm oh. writing another one now um, the first one was about the first five years of traveling uh -huh. uh, in Spanish um, just not so much the traveling but anecdotes and mm -hmm. the 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 thoughts behind them. Yeah. In, a, in a way to explain to your family and friends what had happened to yes. you, right? right. I, want, I, huh. I, I thought I needed, because I, I have a really good relationship with my family, but I felt they were not really understanding what my... Yeah, because they, they had never had experiences like that. No. They're conservative Christian... Yes, my, my dad has traveled and he's a bit more... They minded. speak English really well. Why is that? Well, in those days in Argentina, they learned it at school. Ah, okay. Together with, with French. Ah. So no, they're not completely fluent, but they're good enough. Right, they, they, right. Um, good enough to know why this guy yes. was calling. <laughs> <laughs> That's all that really matters. Yes. Yeah. Um, so your your first book was your travel Yes, yeah, so it was that, and it was more and, a sort of philosophical book, if What's you it will. called? It's called Playing to the Limit, uh -huh. perhaps the translation. Jugando al Limite? Jugando al Limite, uh -huh. yes. And what happened with that one is I just, I wrote it. Then after I came back from the Amazon, I made photocopies. I bound them nice. and I sold them to my friends and family for whatever they could give me. <laughs> and with that money, I came to, to Oh, Africa. really? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. So, but that's most so of my friends never touched those. They just, we were so different with yeah. my friends by then. Yes. Yeah. And um, yes. So I don't think they ever read them. And much later, years later, 10 years later, maybe, um, when Facebook was available, I got contacted by some girls who had read the book. They had found the photocopies, probably the daughter of one of my friends, and that's how it started rolling. And they contacted me because there were some pages missing. So I sent them those pages, and then, yeah, they, they made like a little fan club, if you will, so where each... Had, made three copies and gave it to a friend that thought that they thought might you know, appreciate it. And yes, and then they started coming here and, and visiting. So it somewhat developed a little life of its own. That's awesome. Yes, and now they've published it. They, they've, they've just studied uh, artists, I mean, just, just by hand. And it's, it's not published, not with a... It's, it's not published. It's not no, so it's one of the girls has her own little publishing enterprise and she does her books and books of uh, friends and my own and they, they do their own thing with it that's cool so i've got that one which at some point i need to translate for the boys and <laughs> yeah. for me. i was waiting a little oh, bit oh right you, you don't read spanish no, no, no. and the boys knew so yeah and then after that i wrote another one called pura africa which was about the, the trip through through africa and 
that the love story, mm. um, much less philosophical, a completely different kind of book. And that one got published in Spain in whatever, 2008 mm. or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. And then, so those were autobiographical and they were in Spanish. And now the last one I finished is about the Hadza, but it's a novel. Mm. Just a ridiculous novel with all these different characters that I have not, been not living. Not ridiculous, but but fun and and has has some you know, philosophical spice in it as well. I would say, and mostly for for the boys as well, right? As yes. well, it's like an adventure it's, novel. It's like a young adult or adult young. What's it called? <laughs> it's called Hooch Pooch and Hoodoo. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So those are three Hadza characters. No, it's oh, no. just because yeah. I think there's a doggy involved and there's the Hadza and there's <laughs> oh. alcohol involved uh, and a lot of, oh, hooch, but okay. it's, it's based, it's based on loosely, very, very loosely on, on a real fact, which was that some and Arabs as well, uh, yeah, like some researchers. Arabs wanted to get land for hunting area, hmm. private hunting concession. And so they came and they sort of invaded the Hadza land that was given to them. And then, Eventually they left. That's the the real story. Mm. And in my story, it's just the different uh, characters that that interact with the Hadza, and the main characters are the Hadza and their resilience, I guess, and how they adapt um, to people coming and going, and just remain the same. So tell us what we're talking about Hadza for people who don't oh, know yes. what we're talking about. Like this is one of the. I guess we're as close as you can get to Hadza land. Mm. Uh, yeah, we're in Hadza land. Even. We're in Hadza land. Okay. Um, can we just talk a little bit about who they are and why they're special? Yes. And yeah. they're, 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 they're like, you could say the original people from here or off here. They've been around forever, if you want. And um, you even find rock paintings a few thousand years ago, which were made by their um, ancestors. And they're a hunter-gatherer tribe. So very much live the way people lived before there was agriculture and livestock keeping. And so um, where we all come from in a way. And if you, even if you go with them today, it's like a time travel back into history to those times. And um, they're a small tribe, probably 1,200 of them left. Um, always been quite localized. They've always been around this area. So mm. I mean, they had much bigger territory before. But... Um, some of them, maybe three, four hundred, we would reckon, still live the traditional lifestyle. And um, people can go and visit them and take part in their daily life for a while. And um, that's the main attraction that brings people down here. They have, they have a, a language that's similar to the one um, of the um, sun in the Kalahari, for instance, also in the, in the sense that it has click sounds. Mm. And um, uh, what do you call it? Egalitarian. And um, so... Even the language, I think, is interesting. And whenever it's a plural, it's it's female, it's a feminine form. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but they're organized around the female. So let's say, if unlike other pastoralist groups or whatever, if they if you marry a girl or you take a woman as a partner, you move to her family uh, group. So it's uh, yeah, male uh, ex. I forget the term for that. Um, so the like chimpanzees, expelled, yeah. the female leaves the group, and mm -hmm. as do bonobos, female yeah. bonobos, mm -hmm. right? So in most most human groups, the female leaves to yes, join, exactly. but this is the opposite, exactly. right? Which opposite. I guess lends itself to more female bonding, exactly, which might play into the egalitarianism, yes. Yes, right? 
So the, is there any sort of political structure that you can point to or is everything consensus yeah. decision? Well, basically, the, 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 they, live, they live like like parallel lives in a way. The ladies, they, they just do the foraging and can feed themselves and the children without any help of the men mm. whatsoever. And the men can feed themselves if they will, they want it. But basically... The men go off hunting, the ladies and go gathering off, honey mostly. Gathering, yeah. yes, and then whatever surplus they have, they will bring back to camp. It's a uh, surplus for a day, right? So they can't keep. Um, and how how is it decided who gets what from that surplus? It's all divided equally, in a way, because mm-hmm. when yeah. you when you eat from, let's say, if you eat from a common fire where they've tossed a monkey. Uh, you need to take your part. Nobody will offer you a part. I see. No, unless you're a guest, yeah, <laughs> in right. which case they're nice yeah. enough to offer you. Yes, but otherwise, yes. people just just grab. Right. It's... And what if someone grabs a really big piece and keeps it for themselves? They don't seem to don't, have much yeah, trouble with no, it. They just don't do it. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. exactly. It's just not accepted, and that's why it's not right. Done. So Even if you give them an, an apple, understanding, it's yeah. not done. Yeah. You give right. them an apple, and they'll take a bite, and then right. next thing you know, it's gone all over. Right. And maybe someone took a bigger bite, but nobody is. Looking. I remember reading, or maybe someone told me a story. I don't know if it was the Hadza or another hunter-gatherer group, but. They offered one of them a cigarette, and maybe even Jeff told me, and they broke oh, yeah. the cigarette mm-hmm. into that like would, yeah. seven tiny pieces, and everyone yes. tried to smoke their <laughs> tiny little Either cigarette. Either that, stuff. or what everybody takes a drag. Yeah, that's they, all fish. Yes, yeah, and they don't that. like the filter. They always it's true. The first they thing break they it off. Yeah, yeah, it's too cold. This yes. is. <laughs> so how how are women treated? I mean, I know there's a parallel life you said, but is there? Uh, I mean, in this part of Africa, like the Maasai, there's some problematic mm. things, I guess, from our perspective about the way women are treated, female, no. No. general Actually, I think the women so. are pretty in, strong. In, in some cases, we know somewhere that <laughs> women hit you know, there's, there's no hierarchy and there's no leadership. They actually don't like leadership. And you have cases where the inofficial, let's say, boss, <laughs> boss is, a, is a lady. She, Many cases. She, yeah, quite a few. So they are very strong characters. Right. And, and she's the boss from our perspective just because when she says something, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Because she has a sort of a history of being right, maybe, mm-hmm. or a stronger personality or whatever. Or yes. finding more food. You see, right. the ladies find, I don't know what the percentage is like, but if you look at daily um, food provision, the ladies probably contribute, what, 70, 80% of the food. And mm-hmm. they always find roots, tubers, berries. Hunting is luck, right? And, yes, and foraging for honey as well. So, and the decision to move camp is made by the women according to the availability of roots and and berries. Right. How often do they move camp? I guess it's now, seasonal. Now, not so much. Yeah, but in, it's seasonal, definitely. Um, depends where you are. I mean, here where there's tourism, they less so. And if you go further away, every half year. Mm. And sometimes it's not very far; it's just a kilometer. Right. Yes. As you say the roots are, the you know, roots. they have to regenerate, so you right. better go a bit further and pass it, yeah, and look yeah, at how far water it. is because water is obviously the limiting factor often on where you can live. In the Although dry they need very little water comparatively, because huh. they only drink at a source; they don't collect water to bring home. Uh-huh. So very it's little. Just it's also interesting yeah. when you walk with them; we sweat like a pig, and they hardly break a sweat at all. So. I think they're quite well adjusted in terms of not yeah, You're right. using as much water. Right. Huh. 
And what do you know about the language? Do you, do you it's a language isolate. No, I don't no. speak uh, just a few words. Nani a bit more because she took part of um, James, Woodburn's. James Woodburn when he was teaching the Hadza how to write the language. Some Hadza have oh. gone to school, primary yeah. school, oh. because it's obligatory. So some go, a lot of them go, and most of them just sort of pop back into the bush the moment they can. Um, but yeah, some have, and those were the ones that were taking part of this course. Because James decided that it would be good if they, or some of them at least, knew how to write their own language with the different clicks that they have and so on. And so... Phonetically, yeah. Yeah, he, he sat here for like three weeks, and um, because his hearing is not so good, he often had Nani as his ears. So, <laughs> so I was his ears because I can recognize the different clicks. I can't always reproduce them, but I can recognize them. So what he couldn't hear, I could hear, and... Yes. So. so you were sitting with Hadza people or with recordings? With Hadza No, just writing and so, listening to so, each so, other. So uh, James had a list of vocabulary and things he wanted to, to, to teach them and to learn as well and to but have... Exactly. It was a bit of research for him as well with certain words, what, what the actual meaning was, where did it originate from, maybe how had it changed over time. So it was teaching them, but also learning at the same time. Yes, that was very interesting. So James Woodburn, for people who are wondering, is, I guess, the foremost scholar on the Hadza. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he's still alive, and he's spent Cambridge. quite a bit of time here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cambridge. I read his research. Uh, a lot of it, his, he was doing research here in the 70s, wasn't he? In the, so he started, I think, in 1957. Oh, yeah. fuck. Came out, I think he had That's a... That's crazy. I think if, it, if I'm not mistaken, he had an old uh, Ford Model T or something that was the cheapest car you could get. And then he had to sell that so to have some extra money. And then he only walked and got lifts. Wow. Yeah. Now, he's he's an amazing wow. guy. He's so eloquent. What a life. Stories, mm -hmm. The way he could tell the stories. From the old days, we could listen to him for hours. And we did. Yeah. And he would tell of this one guy and some... some what was his name? Golden Farn. Golden Farn, a Jewish um... settler who had his little farm not too far from here. Mm. And the village now is called Gorofani, which is, <laughs> you know, because of yeah. Golden Farn. And he would tell us the story how we would pass by his place. And he was raising pigs, I think. Yes. <laughs> and then he was living in this little strange house. And there was somehow his books had fallen down. And well, then, he had so many that they had sort of spilled over. Yeah, and then termites the built their, their, their mound around the book. So he said it looked like this strange sculpture of a termite <laughs> mound with books sticking out of it. And stuff cool. like that. So it was yeah, it's he just had amazing. fantastic stories. Yeah, it was a privilege to have listened to him whenever he told the stories. Well, okay. that's... The first time he arrived, it was late at night. It was uh, about 11. He was no, no, eight, it was 8, but we night. thought... Yeah, it, but it was dark yeah, already. Yeah. And he was coming back from... He was coming from the bush and we thought... Oh, he's going to be a really tired old You were already 78 at the time, I think. Well, old man, tired, and kept he us kept up. us up. <laughs> Until, I think, 12 or 1 o'clock, yes, regaling so us with his stories. And, uh, and full of passion. He was interested yeah. in everything, yeah. absolutely everything. Always carried his notebook wherever he went. Yeah. And when he had a question or something, or he heard something interesting, he got out his notebook, started writing down. And it didn't matter what subject. He wasn't just hmm. you know, focused no, on the Hadza no, or on the language. It anything. Absolutely anything. You mentioned a film he wanted to know about it. You mentioned a book. You mentioned a bird. Mm -hmm. Anything. Just, yeah. just absorbing like information. Yes, yeah. Yeah. knowledge. Yeah. Fantastic person. Huh. Yeah, he's not but, well at the moment. Have you guys heard of Robert Sapolsky? You know him? No. Uh, he, he's a, 
a, a baboon researcher. Uh, he was actually a neuroscientist, mm -hmm. uh, teaches at Stanford now, um, but his research is, is in baboons in Kenya. And uh, he wrote a book called The Primate's Memoir mm -hmm. that your book reminded me of, your, your sort of travel book, because it's his book is alternating chapters. One chapter will be about this troop of baboons and the things that are happening there. And he studies stress. So he's very interested mm -hmm. in how the baboon hierarchy mm -hmm. uh, sort of affects the amount of stress hormones. And, and um, so there'll be one chapter about the baboons. And then the next chapter is about hitchhiking to Uganda in 1974 <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Oh. And, you know, just the people he met and the adventures he had in Africa. Yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's a really good book, a primate's memoir. Yeah. I yeah. started yours. I love your writing. Oh, thank you. I started thank Sex you. and I, I just read the, the first started, page yes. and I love that too, of, of uh, Civilized to Death. Oh, the, yeah. The, uh, yeah, really the nice yeah. writing. Thank side. you. Thank you. Maybe catchy. Yeah. I, uh, I didn't sign them because it feels so arrogant to sign. No, but if you books, could, we would love it. Yes, I'd, I'd we didn't want to, to impose. Back exactly. On. exactly. Yes. So, but if it does, now that we're talking about it, it would be nice. Yeah. yeah, and also it's it's nice I, to to sign a book after you know someone True. and you actually have met yes, them. Yes, and you know, it's nice to just, have it and to remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because we're also looking forward to to lending them out to people that we know would appreciate them. So. And give them back. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And when they're they're signed, yeah, yeah, then they give them back. Exactly. There's no, nothing so depressing for an author as to see your, your book in a used bookstore signed. Yes, yeah. that's, that's true. Maria, I'll never forget you. <laughs> Love of my life. Like, what? What is this doing here? Maria. Maria. How good exactly. you? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I Sometimes when I go to a bookstore in, in New York or a big city or something, and I say, do you have a do you have sex at dawn? And they're like, oh, we got three copies. I say, well, I'm the author. I'll sign them if you want. And and they never asked me for ID. So they, anybody they, could... Interesting. I mean, I, I, did you have Moby Dick? Uh, I'm Herman Melville. Oh, Melville. oh you're back. <laughs> exactly. Just sign the, signed by the author. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so what's happening now? Going back to, to your work, Chris, you're working with uh, Free Trade... Fair Trade. Fair Trade, yeah. not Free it's Trade. It's an right? international organization that, um, as the name says, wants to make trade more fair especially for small farmers. Right. So that's the big target group. Like in coffee, it's all small farmer organizations that are democratically organized and also for plantations though. And they're the target group of the workers. Right. So there are certain standards that they have to adhere to and uh, which are staggered over time. The more time passes, the more standards they have to comply with there. are. And um, their benefit is not only market access to this fair trade market, which is growing, but also to um, receive additional funds for their product, the so-called premium, which they then decide what to do with. And the premium comes from what? The fact that the, the end cost is higher because it's verified? Is that... For some products, a fair trade certified product would be slightly more expensive. But um, in this day and age where thankfully consumers know that if they consume consciously, they can make a difference in terms of what happens where the product is produced, um, people are prepared to to make that little difference. And sure. often it's just a fraction, really. Yeah. And there are some where, let's say, flowers, cut flowers. Um, there was a time in Switzerland, I'm not sure what the percentage is now, but where the percentage of fair trade roses sold made up 50% of the all roses sold. Mm. So in those cases, the price is basically the same. Mm. 
And, right. Yeah. And that, is that a governmental decision or just the major distributors just made that exactly. decision? Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. So I, I feel like there's a lot of skepticism. You know, when I go to the store, uh, a grocery store, and I see, uh, oh, these eggs are free range. Mm. These eggs are, you know, no antibiotics, no this and no that. I feel like half the time it's all bullshit. Yeah. It's a market. All natural. All natural doesn't mean anything. You know, it's all it's marketing and it's nonsense. But the price is higher. So I'm paying twice as much for something. And I don't even know if it's if it's real. But but if there is a. uh, fair trade stamp, the mm-hmm. authorized stamp, mm-hmm. that's real. Yeah, absolutely real. And the, but fair trade yeah. is, is not a... Uh, I mean, the, the name fair trade. Copyrighted. It's not, not copyrighted. copyrighted. There's a certain label that goes with it. As so well. it's that label that he can attest to. Yeah, the right, others, right. you know, anybody could use. Yeah, although it's not the name used fair that trade. much no. released, that's the big one. But yes, I can absolutely um, guarantee that because I, I was an auditor myself for a long time. I still do the odd audit or evaluate other auditors um, as opposed to many other certification schemes who um, tap into local certification bodies and their auditors. And, and not knows? necessarily, yeah. exactly. Yeah. We have our own pool of auditors. So we train right. them ourselves. Right. And we pay them, I would say, very well to also ensure integrity and commitment and diligence and all that. But um, to just show how, how I think attractive we are to work for and how people get really committed to the cause because they see what difference it makes when they're on site and carry out their audit. Um, we have five auditors in East Africa and only one is quite recent, the one in Tanzania, but the other four, of the other four, the newest started in 2008. Hmm. So, so for they, a very long time. They want to stick around. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's not only because I think they enjoy the job itself, but also because they see what a difference they make when they go on site. You know, it makes... When, for when the you, workers. For the workers, for the members of organic, small farmer organizations. To give you an example, I went to a um, flower farm once and did an audit and found all sorts of issues that had to be changed and improved to allow them to remain certified. And then a year later, I went again and to the same farm. And you interview workers, obviously, as well. You check documents, you do site visits, but you interview workers in that case quite a lot to get their input on everything, on the compliance. And um, you obviously introduce yourself when you start talking to them to let them know who you, who you are, so to see whether they are willing to talk to you or not. And if they're not, it tells you something as well. Mm. But uh, I've had lots of cases where I introduced myself and then there is, uh, the reaction was, ah, you are the one who caused that and that for us and now we're getting paid overtime properly and now we have our annual leave the way it should be, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, so, and maternity and, and, and protection for, yeah. for spraying. All those things. All those right. things. And there are, some of these farms are massive. They have thousands of workers. So we, we, we get some that, that have yeah, several thousand workers in yeah. one farm. So I think in East Africa, now I'm guessing, but I think the number of workers in the flower sector alone of certified farms is about 50,000. So that's also what makes the job so rewarding for me, even though I mostly sit at the desk and evaluate the results of audits and plan them and make sure that everybody gets their regular audit, is to know uh, what difference one makes even if it's right, you know, but if you go there, you'll see it. Yeah, I think I think uh, I'm probably not 
unusual in the sense that when I see that label, I'm thinking about pesticides and, and mm -hmm. contaminants and all. I'm not really thinking generally about worker Labor, conditions, yes. yeah. which That's, is a huge part of it. It's the main focus, in fact. It's, yeah. it's and, what, and, and what part of the premium goes back to the communities and exactly. what is done well. with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, That's another thing that we have to audit. We have to first make sure that the ones who buy the product, let's say in Europe, um, pay the proper price that they pay the premium, and then we audit the whole supply chain down to the farmer or the worker and make sure that the funds have really reached there, the, the, the um, prescribed amount of funds. Right. And so you're, you're defending the workers. You're making sure they're treated fairly. You're also, I imagine, a lot of this is about soil. and To a certain extent, there's, the environmental standard is um, not the main focus. It's, the, it's a social standard with, obviously, um, economical and environmental aspects. So, yeah, we look at erosion, for instance. We look at um, protection of natural areas areas of forests, no deforestation. Um, pesticide is a big issue in terms of health and safety, but also in terms of what it does to the environment. Right. So there's a large list of pesticides that are not allowed to be used. Right. Um, all these bee toxic ones, for instance, cannot be used outside of a greenhouse. Uh or on product that, that are not flowering. And is Monsanto a, a force in Tanzania? Or? Um, no, not sure. la nothing like in Latin America. Uh, no, okay. No, no. But, but glyphosate... Maybe in South Africa. But to give you an example, in talking of Monsanto, you're thinking glyphosate, yeah, I guess. So yeah. glyphosate, as of 1st of July, will not be allowed anymore in any fair trade certified organization. Oh. Yeah. It's been in a, right. in a transition period. Right. And also 1st of July, so in, in what is it, uh, 12 days, no more glyphosate allowed on products in fair trade. Was there, I, I don't know if you would have access to this information, but I imagine there would be resistance from Monsanto to that move. I mean, that cuts into their market. I think, you see, quite a few of the producers, small farmers especially, um, that are certified are by default organic because they often, in Uganda, for instance, in coffee, it's mostly what they use is, is, is um traditional plant-based um, mm. pesticides. Right. And so the amount that's used is actually relatively small in fair trade. So I, right. it wouldn't really make a big difference to them, I think. And I think there's nothing they can really do about it because these, these, this pesticide list is, um, has been developed within fair trade, obviously, and within the, within the standard making body, but also um, in cooperation with the Pesticide Action Network, which is a big organization that looks at safety of pesticides. Mm. Um, and, and other players. So it's, it's a list that, that is well-founded, let's say. Right. And I don't think anybody can really argue against somebody or a standard deciding not to allow the use of a certain pesticide. Right, no. right. That's great. It's, it's hard to find reason for optimism yes, <laughs> sometimes. True, true. So it it's really nice to hear a story about yeah. an organization that's functioning properly and... Yeah. And doing, yeah. you know, that you're actually getting what you pay for oh, yeah. if that stamp is on there. And, you know, being part of the certification body is, you're, you're in a way, you know, you have the organization that makes the standards. So where are they based, by in, the way? In Germany, in Bonn. Oh, it's a German. But it's an international organization. Yeah. Fairtrade International is the not-for-profit head organization. Mm. They're the ones who make the standards. Yeah. Then you have in the different continents, you have in Latin America, in Africa, and in Asia, you have... Um, the so-called producer networks, they um, provide support to the organizations that are certified. Um, and also, they also, in fact, those three producer networks own half of Fairtrade International. So it's very much a multi-stakeholder approach where the ones who are 
the target of it all actually own it as well, right. which I like a lot yeah. as well in terms of a concept, right. a paternalistic one. Right. Of we know what you should do, but they have a big say in what's happening. Right. And um, as the certifier, we are the ones who criticize, right? We have to make sure that they comply with the standards. And if they don't, we raise that as a nonconformity and they have to correct it. And quite often, um, especially on plantations, it might lead to or require major investment. And so as the ones who come and criticize, we are not obviously very popular. At the same time, um, if you explain that the most important thing of a standard like ours is the reputation and uh, the credibility, um, they understand also that we have to be as strict as we are, because if we didn't, and the journalists came to find that the standards are not applied and adhered mm. to as they are supposed to, then we would be in trouble and the whole system would be in trouble. Right. You know? So, and. That, and their profit margin would be cut, yeah, because they're getting and a higher access yeah, exactly. to the right. international yeah. markets, right? Yeah. Wow. So I, I've I've been at this for what twenty? It'll be twenty years now since I started as an auditor, and I wouldn't want another job because it's just so satisfying. Satisfying, and it's also a very dynamic system that adjusts to new reality. You know, now um, climate change is part of the standard. It wasn't fifteen years ago. How how is that manifest? Um, that, that there are standards that they have to adhere to. They have to show, for instance, that they're moving into um, regenerative energy. Oh, I see. Yeah, they okay, have to, so they it's have about a, carbon footprint exactly, on the operation. And, and, and not using too much. So they have to, it was not an issue at all. Now they have to monitor how much energy they're using to see whether they can improve over time. Mm. Um, and, and yeah, we have we not even have a carbon standard, a fair trade carbon standard. So Yes, and also you have the... the post-pandemic remote auditing and yes. things like that. that yeah. and we, had to, we had to adjust. So there's always something new happening, which mm. keeps the job very interesting as well. How is shipping uh, fit into this? Is that sort of exempt from the process? It's exempt from the process because that's just the nature of the beast, right? Yeah. You have to ship something. Yeah. But of course, um, we have more and more organizations, traders, buyers in the north who decide not to offset that as well. And some mm. of them in the system. Oh, so there's a coffee organization in Ethiopia who, through improved cook stoves, have generated carbon credits. And you have people in the supply chain who decide, okay, we offset our transporting, for instance, with that. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Great. Cool. I, I feel like our friends might be coming back from the hospital. They've come back. Oh, they have come back. Yes, yes, yes. And they came up here and then they saw oh, us sit in Oh, them. okay. Well, let's go say goodbye to them. We just met them a couple of days ago and they were out hunting with the Hudson. I know they want to go yes, to yes, the yes. other part. Yeah. Listen, thank you so much. This is yep. very welcome. Our pleasure. I mean, this is not only my favorite kind of podcast to record, it's like my favorite experience as, uh, you know, traveling. I, you, both of you understand this. Yeah. Like the, the sort of unpredictability of yes, it, yes. you know, just like going somewhere and not knowing what you're going to find and then finding it's paradisical, if that's yeah. the word. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so thank you very much for thank having you. us and for doing this podcast. Yes. My name is Carsey Blanton. I am an old friend of Chris Ryan's and I'm excited to play you my song, Smoke Alarm. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I 
Into the ground. 